Welcome to the Material Evolution podcast series brought to you by Fluency Marketing, a specialist marketing company for the advanced materials sector, and Artec Materials, a UCAS and NADCAP accredited composites test laboratory. Hosted by myself, Gemma Smith, and Dr. Grant Havard. Each podcast will delve into the latest developments in the world of composite and advanced materials, aiming to get beyond the hype and into the real stories behind these technologies. We're passionate about people and want to find out more about the special people that drive the materials industry forward. This month, we have the honour of welcoming Ignaz Furpost, who is Emeritus Professor at the Composite Materials Group of the Department of Materials Engineering at Catholic Universität Leuven. So first of all, we'd love to welcome you to the, to the Material Evolution podcast and say thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's an honour. As Emeritus Professor of the Composites Materials Group at the University of Leuven, you must have a great history of working in composites. What made you choose composites as your career path? Well, in fact, uh, I made my PhD uh, in 81 uh, on, on steel wires and fatigue of steel wires. Uh, and at that time, uh, it was the time when the very first composite tennis rackets were, uh, were coming on the market. And we had in Belgium two famous uh, brands, uh, Donnay and Snowart. And they started also changing from wooden tennis rackets to composite tennis rackets. And the, but they were kind of uh, concerned about the fatigue performance because every hit with such a tennis racket creates vibrations. So they were afraid of the fatigue performance. So they came to our lab and asked uh, whether we could uh, perform some fatigue tests on, on tennis racket frames. Uh, and that's what that was my very first uh, encounter with composites. Uh, uh, I didn't know anything about composites before that because I'm a metallurgist, in fact. Uh, so um, then when uh, I completed my PhD, I got offered uh, a position at the university, but with a request to start a new domain. And uh, then I thought, oh, yes, maybe these uh, composites, these uh, fiber-enforced plastics might be interesting. So that that was uh, the way I got into composites. Uh, and uh, so from there, I started the research group and uh, it gradually grew and grew. And uh, uh, yeah, that's what I have been doing the rest of my life. Uh, Excellent. And I'm sure it was an honor to be chosen by JEC to run its History of Composites project. Um, and, and we can see from your history you know, why they made that decision. How did you embark on such a substantial project? Well, in fact, the, the, the start was, uh, I have been since 2002, I have been very much interested in the relation between composites on one hand and society on the other hand. So how composites, which all composites play in society. Um, and uh, I, I created already in 2002 uh, an exhibition on the how designers use composites and how designers are fascinated by composites. And by doing that, I came into uh, the question, yeah, how, how, how did that interaction between society, uh, industry, technology and composites, how, how did that work in the past? And from there on, I started, started my interest in, in the history of composites. Now, I made a second big exhibition uh, in 2017 uh, in the Design Museum in Ghent uh, on composites and designers. And I had already contact with uh, Jacques at that time. And so they came with a request, uh, yeah, could you elaborate a little bit more on, on the history of composites? Uh, because I had been writing for the, the catalog of that exhibition. I had been writing a paper uh, on, a little bit on the history of composites. So that's uh, where Jacques came to me and invited me to write uh, this uh, document uh, and uh, this kind of first approach to the history of composites because surprisingly enough, there is nothing, there is a lot of little pieces here and there, but there is nothing substantial uh, has been written on, on the history of composites up to now. So from what you've written, I see that you talk about the introduction of glass fibre as the start of the composites revolution, really, as early as the 18th century. 
what was the primary use at this time? Well, maybe I, I, I may correct you a little bit in the sense that... Please do. <laughs> if you go very far back in history, you can already see the very, very first concepts uh, of composites, meaning reinforcing a weak material with a much stronger fiber, fibrous material, you can find that already in prehistory. You can find it in uh, in the ancient uh, Egyptian uh, times. Uh, you can find it in in all kinds of of products uh, in Mesopotamia. Certainly, also in in Japan, uh, there were very interesting developments there. So. The composite concept of reinforcing a weak material with a stronger fiber is already around for thousands of years. And so the very first glass fibers uh, were in fact not developed for that purpose. They were a kind of gimmick. Uh, um, in, in the 18th century uh, and the 19th century, but certainly in the 18th century and certainly in the UK, you had this type of uh, meetings, uh, Sunday afternoon meetings, where uh, scientists and technologists were presenting innovations to a public somewhere in a salon or somewhere in, in, in a house. And, and uh, in fact, you have to see it a little bit in that perspective. Uh, there were some, some scientists in France who had been uh, finding out that you could draw uh, fiber from molten glass. And to be honest, the Romans did do that already uh, uh, 2000 years ago. So this was a kind of reinvention uh, of that concept. Uh, but uh, that was in fact just out of curiosity. And then gradually uh, uh, in the 19th century, there were some uh, people in the textile industry who were looking at other fibers just by interest. Uh, and they then uh, came up with the idea of uh, the French people, Réaumur, uh, amongst others, uh, who were pulling fibers out of molten glass. And they came up with the idea not to pull a fiber out of molten glass, but to let molten glass drip through uh, a spinneret, through a little hole, and draw on that uh, on that uh, molten glass. That was, in fact, the technology which was developed uh, in the 19th century then uh, uh, in the UK, uh, and and from there on. But this that never came to a real development. Uh, they there are very nice uh, examples of people making then dresses out of it uh, for ladies uh, because it was very shiny these uh, glass fiber dresses uh, but it must have been very how do you say that in english very Itchy. picking yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so it never became a success and then it's interesting to see that again so what i'm talking about these uh, these uh, weavers uh, weaving glass fibers is second half of the 19th century it took them again another 50 years before uh, in 19 around 1930 uh, in the us uh, some people invented in fact uh, or uh, industrialized that process of uh, uh, let a molten glass drip through a little hole, a uh, little spinneret, and draw on, on yeah, pull on that uh, on that uh, glass flow, which is then consolidated and making in that way uh, glass fiber. So, and that was Mr. Owens uh, and Mr. Slater who were in fact uh, doing this. Uh. Gemma, how do you feel about wearing a glass fiber dress? Something that appeals to you? Do you know what? I usually try most most um, most dresses out, but that I might give it a might give it a miss. <laughs> <laughs> it's itchy, I think. Yeah, I can imagine it's very very itchy. Yeah, yeah. Not not the nicest of designs, but very shiny. I'm sure it looks beautiful. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I like your description of the founding fathers for the years between 1900 and 1930. What can you tell us about these 30 years? And do you think this is the era when, you know, we really began to see the benefits of the use of composites? Mm -hmm. 
Well, in fact, it's interesting to see that the real breakthrough of of of, uh, of composites, or let's say the the real creation of the concept of composites in a more uh, industrially oriented uh, direction, uh, has been made possible by the invention of plastics of of polymers, and uh, we all know Bakeland, uh, the Bakelite, the phenolic resin. Bakeland was a, a Belgian uh, scientist who moved to the U.S. and then who invented uh, the phenolic resin. And already in his first uh, patent in 1907, uh, he describes that you one could put fibers into that resin. Uh, he didn't explain in that patent why he put these fibers into it. But it's obvious, I think, when you know about phenolic resins, they are very brittle. So you need to do something uh, to, to, to stop the cracks in that phenolic resin. Otherwise, it just scatters like, like glass. Uh, so uh, he uh, he has been already uh, in his first patents, patent mentioning the concept of putting fibers into a, uh, a phenolic resin to stop cracks. But then uh, it, another five, six years later, two of his former collaborators then systematically started combining phenolic resin with layers of fibers. And these layers of fibers were normally natural fibers like flax uh, or even paper uh, as a layer. And then they exactly describe in their patent the way we make composites now. They say you put a, a, you take a layer of reinforcing fibers, you impregnate it with the resin, you apply heat and pressure, and then uh, you get a product which is much stiffer and much stronger than, than the phenolic resin uh, itself. So that's very interesting to see that, uh, but that was it. So the only product they made with that was what we now know as formica, uh, formica is uh, it comes from. It was to replace mica, uh, and uh, so so. But it never went beyond that that uh, that type of applications. So uh, making sheets of a hard and heat resistant uh, material, what phenolic uh, is. It's interesting to see that uh, uh, about at the same time as uh, Bakeland and his uh, two uh, collaborators filed that patent on uh, formica, so on, on laminates with uh, fibers and phenolic resin, that uh, the concept of that material was then used by another engineer, Kemp, who filed in 1916 in the US uh, two patents where he already described that one can make complete airplanes out of it. Uh, and, and it's very interesting to see that this was described very much in detail, which parts that the complete airplane, the fuselage, the wings and the rudders and so on, all could be made out of that uh, material. Of course, the technology at that moment was not ready to realize that. So I have not found up to now any proof that this uh, Robert Kemp in 1916 really tried to make what he was describing in his patents. So, and then it took uh, until 1937 uh, before Norman de Bruyne, who was a researcher at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, explored the possibility to make composites based on phenolic resins and flex fibers to make it in an industrial way. In fact, exactly the way it was described in the patent of uh, Bakeland of 1907, uh, the Formica patent of O'Connor and Faber in 1913. So he developed, in fact, a kind of semi-continuous uh, process, which resulted into flat panels with uh, interesting properties, uh, because the flex fibers are, in fact, almost as stiff as uh, glass fibers. Um, it was used, that process, to make a full-scale 
wing spar for the Blenheim aircraft. And also, uh, later on, another uh, researcher in the UK, Gordon, with his company Gordon Aerolite, uh, also produced uh, parts uh, like uh, a full-scale wing spar for the Blenheim aircraft and also a part for the Spitfire. So uh, this was a very interesting development. It was the very first time in history that uh, fiber-enforced polymers have been used to make structural parts in uh, aircraft or structural parts anyway for a certain uh, application. There were some successes, so uh, apart from those two prototypes, there were some successes which were really used, like a tailplane for a Miles Magister airplane and a composite seat for the Spitfire, but there were also uh, quite some problems. We, we've spoken a lot about um, glass fibre and flax fibres and the genesis of the composite industry so far. But what can you tell us about the origins of carbon fiber and aramids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, let me say quickly about aramids. Aramids are, uh, let's say, an interesting material. They are a polymeric material, an oriented polymeric material. They have a high stiffness, uh, about yeah, one and a half times higher than glass and, and flex fibers. Um, but they have one or two major problems for applications, structural applications, is that they absorb water like flex fibers. So they are water absorbent on one hand and they have a weak uh, compression resistance. So you see aramid fibers basically only in applications where they're most important uh, positive property, namely their impact resistance. They, they absorb energy during fracture where that uh, property is dominating in the application. And so you see aramid fibers only in this type of applications. And I think maximum a few percent of all composite applications are using aramid fibers. And the question when the development of carbon fibers started. In fact, it's uh, very interesting to see that uh, the very first developments for carbon fibers have been uh, done not for with the goal to reinforce uh, polymers. Uh, in the 50s uh, in the US, there were some attempts to carbonize or to, to, yeah, to carbonize rayon uh, fibers and other natural fibers with as goal to produce uh, thermal insulation mats or filter applications or rocket nozzle uh, exit cones. So these were just uh, uh, fibrous materials and not uh, Im uh, impregnated with resin. In that same period, in the in the 50s, uh, the end of the 50s, there were although uh, two interesting developments. One was uh, Abbott, who uh, in 56 to 59 has been carbonizing rayon fibers in an in an oven, and he realized mightily interesting uh, carbon fibers with low strength uh, and low uh, low stiffness. And almost uh, similarly, or par in parallel, Roger Bacon uh, at Union Carbide uh, Research Center made the very first carbon whiskers in a totally different way. I cannot go into detail, but he found out that these carbon whiskers had an enormous stiffness and an enormous strength. These were very short uh, fibers and very fine whiskers. So one could not really use them uh, as reinforcement for composites. But there it was shown that there was a real potential in these fine carbon uh, fibers. But uh, uh, this same uh, uh, Roger Car uh, Bacon uh, then uh, has been doing uh, further research and also other people at Union Carbide like Ford and Mitchell tried to uh, carbonize rayon and they reached uh, some higher uh, properties, uh, strength up to uh, 700 megapascal, which was not too bad for that time.
all this research in the US was uh, in fact focusing on uh, either natural or rayon fibers which are carbonized and which are uh, not immediately used as reinforcement for composites. And then there was an interesting twist in history, in fact. Uh, and we have to go uh, to Japan for that. Uh, Akio Shindo uh, in Osaka uh, was reading a, a newspaper, an economic newspaper article um, in uh, May uh, 1959. Uh, about the developments of uh, uh, bacon uh, in the US uh, on carbonizing rayon into graphite or, or carbon fibers. And he thought, uh, maybe I can try that as well, because Shindo was at that time doing some research on carbon in general, on carbon used in nuclear power plants. So. The amazing thing is that only three months later, namely in September uh, 1959, he already filed a patent on a process to make carbon fibers out of uh, uh, polyacrylonitrile uh, precursor fibers. So he chose that, uh, that uh, polymer. It's too long to go in detail uh, how he did it and why, but that was a real breakthrough because it was shown that these fibers had very interesting properties, that the yield, the amount of carbon fibers you can get out of the precursor, the pan fibers, was really high and the process could be well controlled. So the question is now, uh, who in fact invented uh, these uh, carbon fibers. Shindo, I think, played a crucial role in showing uh, how uh, these carbon fibers had to be produced. And he invented that the oxidation phase is very important and only after oxid oxidizing the pan fiber, you can uh, make a good uh, a carbon fiber by further carbonizing this oxidized uh, fiber. But his research was in fact initiated by knowing about the research on uh, rayon fibers of, of bacon and others in the US. And later on, a few years later, 1963, uh, also in the UK at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, there were interesting developments in the sense that uh, um, William Watt and Johnson and Phillips uh, then uh, redo, uh, did the, the, the same uh, research on making carbon fiber, so at the Royal Aircraft Establishment, and they explicitly applied, applied tension during the oxidation of the pan fibers. And by doing that, they could reach very high stiffnesses for these carbon fibers. Now, the whole question is, who has in fact really invented these carbon fibers? Was it Bacon, who with his initial work on rayon fibers? Was it uh, Shindo with his work, systematic work, on uh, uh, pan fibers, first oxidizing them and then uh, carbonizing them? Or was it uh, uh, Watt and Johnson and Phillips at the Royal Aircraft Establishment who then explicitly said, we have also to apply tension during that oxidative stabilization uh, process. I think all three of them have been playing an important role, uh, but in my opinion, the, the crucial uh, innovation has been uh, realized by, uh, by uh, Shindo in, uh, the, in Japan uh, in his, uh, in his uh, research. Excellent. And that takes us nicely on because um, I know that you said the, the patent of the full composite aeroplane was filed in 1916. It, it took a, a further 50 plus years to develop the first full composite civil aeroplanes. Do you think these aeroplanes pulled on the technology from that original patent at all in any way? 
I, I, I'm pretty sure <laughs> it is not because when uh, I, I maybe uh, have been one of the first to 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 make this the existence of that patent uh, uh, of 1916 known into the composite world, uh, it was completely unknown that already in 1916 somebody has been drawing in detail uh, the the design for for a composite airplane. So what happened in fact was that gradually well uh, in the 19 the 1940s there was a lack of material due to the second world war so they were looking for replacing aluminium by other materials and that was where the brown and gordon in the royal aircraft establishment have been uh, uh, have been looking at alternative materials than 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 uh, aluminium uh, so that that uh, uh, is is clear but they kind of were not aware of what was described in 1916 and so uh, but they were also uh, they they could not make well there has been made in 1943 or 44 a complete uh, glass fiber uh, aircraft uh, in the us uh, but also that was a one time prototype uh, and people uh, saw very rapidly that uh, the technology was not really ready for making that so what you have seen then in the 1950s that step by step certain parts of an aircraft were replaced by by uh, from aluminium uh, to to uh, uh, composites but only glass fiber composites as i mentioned earlier uh, because carbon fibers didn't exist yet uh, they only came up in the uh, early 1960s so only glass fiber composites but they are not sufficiently stiff so they could only be uh, used in a limited number of of, uh, of places in an aircraft. The best known being the radome, the radome uh, uh, which has to be uh, uh, radar transparent and and glass fiber composites uh, are perfect for that. Uh, and then only when the carbon fibers came then all of a sudden the aircraft engineers had available uh, material which could compete stiffness wise with aluminium huh? uh, in absolute terms certainly but certainly also in 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 uh, density uh, um, corrected terms so uh, the specific stiffness so the stiffness divided by the density and one way or another uh, uh, is superior in carbon fiber composites compared to aluminium and that was then really the driving force and you see then that in aircraft uh, military aircraft where the the weight is is very important because of the maneuverability as far as i understand it for for military aircraft that uh, uh, that was then the decisive uh, reason for developing step-by-step uh, -step then uh, uh, carbon composite uh, aircraft. Just another topic. Um, there's obviously a lot of talk globally about net zero and, um, and we know the topic of recycling is huge for the industry. I can't see any mention of recycling and yet we know the likes of, you know, Hexel have invested in carbon conversions, um, and then there's companies such as Gentoo Carbon and BMM Longworth's Decom. So we can see that there's huge investment and achievements that have been made in the area. Was there a reason this is left out of the history? Well, uh, what I have, uh, let's say, uh, written down in, in, in my document on the history of composites, uh, I, I, I completed it with... Uh, vision for the future and there that is mentioned but let's say where i ended my historical overview in the early 2000 so let's say 10 years ago that topic was simply not present um, what was present certainly also for use of composites in automotive applications and in all kinds of of uh, transport applications was the fact that because composites have such a high stiffness over weight ratio or strength over weight ratio the products which you are making with it when you use it when you move with it 
drastically reduce the energy consumption. A composite car can weigh something like six, 700 kilograms compared to the 1400 to 2000 kilograms we have now for, for, for a car. So, and that then has a positive ecological impact in terms of energy uh, um, consumption. But the whole problem of recycling or the whole problem of the energy you need to produce composites, so the embedded energy, as we say it, uh, uh, is was not, not an issue uh, up to, let's say, something like 20 years ago. Uh, um, it is an issue now. I'm, I, I fully agree and uh, I'm very happy that uh, this is now addressed as a problem uh, or as a challenge, <laughs> let's put it like that. Um, and to make a very quick statement on that, uh, I think that um, the recycling of carbon fibers is, uh, is technically now solved. Uh, we can split uh, carbon fibers from the polymer matrix uh, in different ways by pyrolysis or other things and then you can reuse the carbon fibers and you can do with the polymer matrix different things uh, i will not go into that uh, and also economically it's it's uh, it's feasible because the carbon fibers the recycled carbon fibers have a value uh, which is economically interesting. So that recycling process is economically, uh, can be successful. It's a different story for glass fibers because the glass fibers are so cheap by themselves that when you put a lot of effort to recycle them, to get them out of the matrix, the resulting glass fiber is not so much an interesting economical, economically interesting product. Uh, there are very interesting things going on, for instance, in the huge amount of glass fiber composites will, which we help, will have to recycle, which come from wind turbines. Uh, in the coming years, there will be massive amounts of glass fiber composites to be recycled. Also there, there is a, a coordinated effort by the uh, wind turbine manufacturers to, to come up with, with an industrially interesting or economically interesting uh, solution. Uh, Ignace, I, yeah. obviously you've said that um, recycling of carbon fibers is technically and economically possible now. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we don't see more um, large-scale recycling of these at the moment? And what would it take to get there? Yeah. And an, an important uh, issue is a kind of uh, logistic uh, problem. You have to collect all these carbon fiber parts. Uh, let's, let me put it like this. The uh, recycling of industrial waste, that is already very well organized. And people, there are companies all over the world who do recycling of industrial waste. So, uh, I mean, uh, leftovers of prepregs or parts which have to be cut out. So leftovers of this, because this is quite uh, easy to, to logistically organize. You bring it from one factory where they produce the composite or the, or the prepregs or the fibers to a recycling plant where they do, for instance, pyrolysis. So that, that is logistically in, uh, not so difficult. It's a different story if you uh, want to recycle all the carbon fibers, not only in aircraft, but also in cars and in bicycles and in tennis rackets and so on. Then you have to collect all this. Uh, and that is, I think, the main, the main uh, stumbling block for, for having a high percentage of recycling of carbon fiber composite at this moment. But it will happen, I think, uh, because we see also that more and more uh, companies are looking for recycled carbon fibers. I think there is at this moment a bigger demand for recycled carbon fibers in the automotive industry because for them 
it's an interesting product, it's light, it's stiff, it's strong, and it has a very low ecological impact. So the, 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 the LCA of recycled carbon fiber composite parts is very interesting for the automotive industry. Um, so we will see, I think, an increasing uh, effort to collect uh, post-consumer uh, waste carbon fiber composite parts and to bring them to the recycling plants because I see the, 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 the demand for recycled carbon is, is increasing. So essentially we need to interact more with um, the waste carrier carrying side of um, the world so that they know that there is a process that we can go down to actually recycle these carbon fibers. So the conversations need to be less technical at the composite industry level and needs to be more strategic with the waste. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and you see that very nicely in uh, in the, the wind turbine industry. Huh? They see uh, at this moment, well, first of all, the more recent wind turbines, uh, 100 meter and longer, they have already a substantial amount of carbon fibers in it. So they will have to, to have a dual trajectory for recycling, recycling the carbon fibers in the wind uh, turbine blades on one hand, and then the recycling the major part, the glass fiber part. But the wind uh, turbine uh, blade industry is is preparing themselves for, for addressing that, that problem. Uh, they are even going further now, and they are going to replace the epoxy resin by uh, thermoplastic resin. So we will see in the coming years a growing number of thermoplastic uh, resin, thermoplastic matrix, wind turbine blades. And then the story of the recycling becomes drastically different because then in the glass fiber part of that, the carbon fiber part still will be interesting to, to do, for instance, pyrolysis and recycle the glass fibers as such. But for the glass fiber thermoplastic composites, you simply can re-grind them, re-melt them, and use them in injection molding or similar or, or extrusion processes where you have then a short fiber reinforced composite, which is a, a small downgrading of the properties on one hand, but it's still a very valuable uh, material and a very interesting material. Okay, so moving on from recycling, what do you think has been the single biggest achievement of the industry so far? Oops, that's a, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Um, in my opinion, the, 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 well, if you say the industry as a whole, I think the most important uh, development has been uh, in the uh, invention of carbon fibers. We cannot imagine uh, how important that has been because all of a sudden we have a material which outperforms any other material we know uh, for applications where strength, stiffness and weight are important. The combination of those three parameters, uh, it's low weight, it's high stiffness and high strength. Uh, so, and that was a material which was not at all known, even when we had glass fibers, even when we had the natural fiber reinforced phenolic of Bakeland in the early 20th century, the breakthrough in 19, let's say around 1960, of creating carbon fibers and then using these carbon fibers 10 years later when Torre built their first uh, uh, plant in Japan, using these fibers for composite applications dedicated to composite applications. That was, I think, the, the most important, uh, the most important uh, uh, achievement. Um, second, I think, is then but that's a kind of group of achievements is then and it's not a single a single breakthrough is all the um, manufacturing technologies which had which had to be invented to make composites in an industrial way um, let's say 
in the 1930s uh, and and before and even shortly after we had simply a hand layup uh, system and we compressed it uh, with the phenolic resins and that was it if we see where we are now uh, for instance, uh, one of my students created here in Leuven a company where they use robots to make uh, um, uh, thermoplastic uh, carbon and steel fiber reinforced frames for bicycles. Uh, this is a completely robotized uh, way of producing uh, uh, with uh, tape laying and then uh, uh, forming in a robotized way and compression molding and so on. So there is completely robotized. So that set of innovations, and it's not a single innovation, but it's a series of innovations to come from a kind of manual production to a completely, uh, let's say, automated and even nowadays a robotized uh, production is i think something we cannot imagine uh, how important that has uh, that has been <laughs> the third one i think but that is uh, is not really uh, let's say an industrial breakthrough but an uh, academic breakthrough uh, also to understand these materials as i said already before we needed new theories we needed new concepts to describe the behavior of the material the laminate plate theory or the material the, the theories of heterogeneous media of fibers in a matrix uh, this uh, let's say was not existing it was ex existing conceptually there were some russian scientists who developed these theories in the 1940s 1950s but from 1970 on from the breakthrough of carbon fibers and the use of carbon fibers in aerospace industry then we needed reliable new theories and this was also almost starting from scratch so and now we have very powerful computer programs based on these theories to predict the behavior of 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 carbon of uh, composite materials uh, yeah Okay, and looking forward over the next 50 years, you talk about 10 exciting challenges and opportunities. Which development do you think offers the most exciting opportunity for the industry? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, three, three directions. Um, one is that we will uh, have to uh, gradually and more and more replace uh thermoset matrices by thermoplastic matrices for two reasons uh, that means for reason of performance thermoplastic matrices are more ductile so they are more damage resistant on one hand and on the other hand for reason of uh production related uh, properties uh, you can drastically reduce the, the 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 production time of a car of a composite part when you're using thermoplastics in the, instead of thermosets and of course there is the issue of the recycling which is also uh, important but so for these three uh, reasons uh, uh, ductility uh, recyclability and fast production potential thermoplastics uh, are are uh, drastically needed to further be further developed and i think uh, we are very much going into that uh, into that uh, direction the second uh, thing is uh, you might think i will mention uh, nano nano fibers and nano composites um, let's say for the traditional application domain of composites which is structural parts which are loaded and which have to be light and so on i am rather skeptical whether we will ever see a big breakthrough of uh, of nano uh, nano reinforced materials what we will see and what is happening now is a further improvement of existing fiber systems we will see a further improvement and it's happening let's say uh, in a way underground it's not very well known but we see a further improvement of carbon fibers in terms of performance 
creating even higher stiffness with higher strength, which was always a problem. You had either high stiffness or high strength, but both together is, 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 is the issue. So we see developments in that direction. We see very interesting developments in making carbon fibers in a more ecological way meaning that you need less energy to make them so the embodied energy uh, of the carbon fibers is being drastically reduced so we see a lot of interesting developments there and we see attempts to replace the uh, synthetic polyacrylonitrile uh, starting fiber by fibers based on renewable uh, resources uh, we see attempts to use uh, lignin, we see attempts uh, uh, to use, uh, uh, for instance, uh, poly, uh, polypropylene or, or, or similar uh, uh, fibers based on natural resources and so on. So, so, so I think this development is for composites in the traditional way as we know them, much more important than the development of nano-reinforced uh, materials. And then the third big development I see is uh, the use of bio-based fibers. Um, it has been considered as a kind of, how should I say it, uh, a toy for the green people huh? uh, so uh, to make your composites greener um, i think it's now becoming much more serious uh, and we see big companies in the automotive industry using more and more flex and hemp based uh, 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 composites uh, we see in the sports industry uh, uh, attempts to use natural fibers uh, in in yachts, uh, in tennis rackets, for instance, in bicycles is a very interesting development because these materials have damping capacity, which is interesting for products which have problems with vibrations and so on. So, so these are for me the three the three uh, challenging and 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 very promising uh, uh, developments. So thermoplastics innovative uh, uh, fibers and mainly innovations in the carbon fiber domain and then the, the uh, bio-based uh, materials. Excellent, thank you. Um, we were going to ask a next question around challenges, but I think you, you know, you've, you've kind of answered that in the same question because of course, you know, to look forward to the, you know, to, to what's going to happen, uh, you know, we have to talk around you know, what the biggest challenge is. And I think you mentioned nanocomposites um, there. So we'll move on, um, which brings us to our fun questions at the end, which I always love to ask. So if you could choose any three people, past or present, to invite to dinner, who would it be and what would you eat? <laughs> Yeah, that's a very nice, uh, very nice question. Out um, of the top of my head, I would think about three people. Two are very well known, and one is not known enough. I think uh, one is, of course, a uh, Barkeland, uh, Leo Barkeland, the inventor of phenolic resins, uh, because he has, in fact, written the first, uh, the first. Uh, uh, patent uh, which mentions the reinforcement uh, of by fibers of, of, of polymer matrices but also because uh, he was born very close to where I was born so uh, we could uh, chat in our dialect in our Flemish dialect and uh, and I would really like to hear uh, how he came to 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 this development and he in fact became a very important entrepreneur and, and an industrialist a second uh, I would like to meet uh, and unfortunately he died also in the meantime is Akio Shindo so the real inventor of carbon fibers in Japan um, because it's for me still un, uh, incomprehensible how he could within three months come from never having worked on carbon fibers to file a patent which is the basis of, of all we are doing now in, in, in carbon fiber composite uh, technology. So 
to read his mind to 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 understand what he has been doing in these three crucial months and what he has been doing afterwards uh, of course and developing further the technology would be would be very interesting and uh, the third one uh, would then be Lewis uh, Latimer and he is a not very well known scientist in the field of composites uh, he is somewhat known in the field of the uh, 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 light bulbs uh, developments by Edison uh, in the uh, around 1880 and he in fact uh, was a, a black uh, researcher uh, with uh, his father was an African slave and uh, he in fact improved the, the technology Edison had been inventing uh, of uh, carbonizing bamboo uh, fibers uh, to make the filaments for for the uh, light bulbs uh, and uh, he improved that technology by adding cardboard to make it uh, less fragile and i would like to discuss with uh, this person uh, uh, how did he, did he realize as a son of an african slave to come to that level of uh, of being involved in science and in technology uh, in fact he started as a technician in the lab of edison and then grew up uh, and became really a very good scientist in that field so I would like to to sit together with those two people, three people with Bakeland uh, uh, on one hand, with Akio Shindo uh, to, second, and with uh, Lewis Latimer uh, third. In fact, to read their mind, to see uh, how they have been uh, um, developing these uh, these uh, innovations uh, uh, in their time. And your question was also what I would like to present for for dinner and uh, not because of Akio Shindo but I would like to present them a good uh, Japanese dinner uh, with sushi and with all these other nice uh, Japanese uh, uh, food uh, nice Japanese uh, uh, meal uh, I like very much Japan and uh, I like even more uh, Japanese uh, Japanese food and to finish then, Ignas, uh, can you tell us your favourite joke? My favourite joke? Yes. I, I am absolutely a zero in jokes. I never can, <laughs> I never can uh, remember a joke. I, I, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, jokes are, in one way or another, it's an empty hole in my in my brain so i cannot <laughs> i cannot uh, i cannot tell jokes uh, i'm sorry so i have to uh, <laughs> disappoint you <laughs> uh, i was uh, last week at this weekend with my grandchildren and one of them he he can and he is uh, eight years nine years old he can tell jokes one after the other uh, and i say uh, Cass, you you are uh, amazing. I would like to have one percent of your joke capability. I have none, <laughs> so I'm sorry for that. <laughs> and on that bombshell, it's time to bring the uh, show to a close. So um, thanks, Ignas, for joining us today. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you listen on, and leave us a review. Thanks for listening and we will be back with another interesting guest from the world of materials next month.